0: My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with Brian Gillette. He is the author of Epic Performance, Lessons from 100 Executives and Endurance Athletes on Reaching Your Peak. Brian has over 25 years experience in leadership and organizational development with executive and senior level responsibilities in small and large companies. Before starting his consulting practice, he was on the executive committee as the vice president of human resources for a mid-sized global technology company. In addition to running human resources and payroll, he has extensive experience in leadership development organizational design, communications and mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I have been really excited about this conversation. Uh, your experience and you know the the endurance, athletics, the the not just your achievements in your professional life, but your achievements in your personal life. it's uh, just incredible and I and I always love talking to people that, Love to talk about leadership. So, thank you so much for having this conversation with me,
1: Dave. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I appreciate uh, I appreciate you uh, you having me here.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Well, um, let's uh, let's start with where you were born and raised, and uh, really maybe some of the early influences that led you on this path that you're on today.
1: Yeah. So I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I live about. 45 minutes east of San Francisco in the suburbs. And I was born and raised probably about 10 miles from where I'm living today. So I've always lived in, in California or in kind of the, you know, in the San Francisco Bay Area or even uh, um, a little bit further east when I went to school up in near Sacramento in Davis. Some of the er- so so that's where I am today. I love it here. Um, my family members are in the area, so it's it's nice to stay here, but I also love to travel and maybe we'll dig into that later on. The, the early influencers, I, I think my big the, my parents are clearly two of the, the earliest influencers. My, my mom was always very athletic, played soccer even into her 40s. Um, In fact, she played more soccer as an adult than she she did as a kid. She didn't play as a kid. And my dad was the same. They formed this adult soccer league 50 years ago, and it still runs today. And I saw how they stayed active when they were in their 30s and 40s. And when you're a kid and your parents are 40s, you think that's really old. And, and then, um, and they still continue to be relatively active. My dad right now, who is 83 years old, is hiking across 96 miles across Scotland. So uh, he he is my inspiration, and I hope that I can continue to do that. But I saw that competitiveness of my mom; I got some of that, and I saw that just drive to kind of keep going from both my mom and my dad. And they're just they were great role models, and they they still are to this day.
0: And um, were they really in in the corporate world as well? Is that kind of what uh, led you to? Go
1: down that path no they weren't
0: um my dad for for all
1: intents of purpose should be either in jail or dead because he he <laughs> grew up and, and and i i i mean i say that it's it's true and i i say that if he were here as well because he grew up he had a really rough childhood um, grew up uh, where his parents were gone, you know, there was a part of the time he was living on the streets, he was in and out of foster homes. And so you look at the statistics and the statistics would not indicate he was going to have a successful life. Um, there were just so many, so many headwinds against him and he turned it around. He, he ended up, uh, he was in the, the army for a short, short amount of time and then was, um, or in the military for a short amount of time and then um, learned construction. And he ran his own construction um, business for most of the time when i was a kid but he got into construction and then he built custom homes and just some beautiful homes in the san francisco bay area so that's what he was doing my mom was a stay-at-home mom i mean she was she was a secretary kind of early on in her career and then was a stay-at-home mom for for as, as long as i grew up and and i loved that i loved the ability that my mom was there but I also liked that my dad worked out of the house. I mean, he would go to the job site, but his office was in the house. And so I could at any time go down and, and just you know, chat with him. And so they were very present in my life. And I think that framed who I became as a father. Um, but just these these tremendous, tremendous role models. So I, I mean, I then I had no desire to go into construction. <laughs> uh, my brother went down that path. I was not going to go down that path, and I uh, I went on to college. You know, got my master's and kind of went into the corporate world. And 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 I always knew that I would go that go that direction. I don't know. I, I'd love to dig in to where it came from, but I just don't know how where that kind of came from because it wasn't
0: it wasn't from my parents. And and you've got a couple of bachelor's degrees, and then you've got an MBA, correct? I I
1: do. Yeah. So I have originally I was going for a bachelor degree in an organizational or in in communications. And then I noticed if I took a couple more classes and kind of do my senior year, I really push it hard in my senior year, I could get a second undergraduate degree. So I I double majored and then that senior year was tough. I then went in and worked for a financial services company right out of college and just had this great job, had some great mentors. It was a great organization and while I was there i got my went back and got my master so i was uh, I was going to school at night and then um, working working during the day
0: and what led you into like the human resources arena
1: i i I had um, a lot of people had told me that I was good kind of in leadership and and managing people. Um, I had had some good experiences in college, I had some good experiences in high school. You know I refereed soccer, you know, you know, up to the kind of the professional ranks, um, and I was good at kind of managing difficult situations. And, and just a number of people said, oh, you'd probably be good this way. And so I started to explore it. And where early on where I was really interested is going down that learning and development, that training and development space. And, and as I was talking to one of my early mentors, I had explained, this is what I was looking to do. And I was only a, a couple of years out of, probably a year or two out of, uh, out of college at my first job. And he said, if you're gonna go down that rank, what I recommend you do is just get some, get some real leadership experience. Go in and manage a team. And, and I did that, and I continued to manage teams for a long time. But it gave me that, gave me that practical experience early on, and I think that is so critical. I, I see a lot, of, a lot of consultants who never really manage. That they talk about leadership, but they never really managed a team. And, and you got to understand what it's <clears throat> like to manage a team in order to be able to help people manage a team or manage, manage people. So that's a, that's a little bit about kind of the, you know, to your,
0: to your question. And now did you start traveling the world uh, while you were still uh, working for an organization or was this when you went into, uh, you know, your, your entrepreneur career? Yeah.
1: I, uh, you know, I got a love of travel from my parents and we traveled you know we didn't travel a ton um, but we did my parents recognized that it was important to go travel and so we did a lot of, of travel in the United States and then the first time I went to Europe was when I was in high school and it just gave me that passion for travel and and then I had you know a number of the jobs I had allowed me you know you know my first job or my first the first company I was at you know I took many trips to to Europe and and was teaching classes in Europe and so that kind of continued to get me interested and whenever I'd get a chance to go somewhere I would take it then in 2005 I hadn't been with my at the time girlfriend now wife and arc the company I was at I was traveling with them but I we had just gotten acquired and I thought you know the future isn't going to be as exciting as it was in the past with this this new organization and i love the company i was at so i thought i'm going to i'm going to take 7 months off and travel around the world and so the girlfriend i asked my girlfriend and she was interested and i thought you know it's it's a really good test for a long-term relationship if you can travel with somebody for 7 months then yeah. There's there's a good chance of success, and so we we did that. And I always ask the question, you know, before I did it, and I was nervous about doing it. I asked that question. It's like, will I regret not doing this in twenty or thirty years? And the answer was pretty quick. And that it's like, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go travel around the world. And we took seven months off. Toward the end of that seven months, I proposed to her on the Great Wall. And then we got married, we've, we've got two boys, and we took them out of school for a year a couple of years ago and traveled for a year around the world. And again, it was that same question is will we regret not doing this in 20 or 30 years? And, and we, when we answered yes, it's like, okay, we got to figure out how we can do it.
0: Man. And we did. Man, that's awesome. That's really cool. And then there's, <clears throat> in your book, you have these executives and athletes, you know, and you're, you're taking these leadership lessons. And I would imagine a lot of it. I, I, I actually, I'll defer to you. (laughs) You know, I have my thoughts on it. I I went through the book a little bit, but I am uh, not as familiar as you, obviously. So (laughs) Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about that? What are, you know, what is this EPIC uh, acronym?
1: What's the EPIC framework stand for? Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's five kind of core behaviors as part of EPIC performance. And what EPIC stands for, it's the first four, E is what is the, you know, what do you envision kind of around your career, around the future, around work, around your personal life, the, the big things that you want to accomplish? You know, how do you envision those things and, see, and see, define, see the future? And then the P is how do you put a plan in place in order to get to that vision? So what do you have to do um, when you're looking 20, 30 years out? What do you, what's that plan you should be thinking about? I is how do you iterate to that plan? You don't start off being the, you know, the chief of the fire department. <laughs> you, start, you start off, you know, at a much lower level and you work your way up. And, and that's what iterate is, you know, I as an endurance athlete, I didn't start off, you know, running 200 miles around Lake Tahoe, I started off at much shorter paces, you know, my first training run was four miles, and then you worked it up to a marathon and then a 50 miler and then a 100 miler and eventually a 200 miler. So that's what iterate is, the C is how do you collaborate with other people who've come before you. Whether they have been successful or they have failed in it, but how do you how do you collaborate with them learn from their successes learn from their failures, because fundamentally there's not a lot of stuff that is super new out there. You, know, you can learn from other people that have done some done the same or something similar, and then the lastly, lastly you just you got to go out and perform it. And you got to stand at the start line and work your way to the finish line and so that's what epic performance is all about and kind of what the uh, the epic stands for.
0: Yeah. And and what inspired you to write your book?
1: Yeah, I, you know, there were three things that, that kind of, you know, encouraged or inspired me to write it. The, I've always wanted to, to write something, but I, you know, I've, these three kind of got me into have something and get it framed. I was, I'm an avid cyclist, and I've always liked to cycle. And I was doing something that was I thought would push my mind and my body to the limits, and that was riding three hundred miles in twenty four hours. so it was one day, three hundred miles, and earlier in the day, I saw somebody die earlier in the day i was I collided with another bicycle that required me to get a new front wheel, and it just you know shakes you a little bit. But when I got to mile two seventy five I realized you know I didn't hit that limit that I thought I would and and maybe. We put these limits in in our head and it holds us back from accomplishing more. And so as I got to 275, uh, you know, and and kind of the last 25 miles and realizing, you know, I I can push myself further. I'd always been a cyclist, never a runner. And I thought, I'm going to run a marathon. So before I got to the finish line of that 300 miler, it's like I decided I'm going to to run a marathon. And then and I trained for the marathon. I worked, I did the 20, you know, that. I did the 50, a couple 50 milers, 100 miler, and then eventually a 200 mile run, which is eight marathons back to back. And, and it really, it's like, okay, I know I can push myself really hard. And so what is it allows me to do that? And then the last thing that really kind of stemmed the kind of told me that I got to do this is before we traveled around the world for a year with our kids, we some friends held a going away party. And I had a number of people that come up came up to me and said, you know, we love what you're doing, but we could never do it, or they said I could never do it. And, and I thought, why are you telling yourself, you can't do it. And you're just, you know, you probably can. Now, if you don't want to, I get that. But again, they were shutting off something that maybe they could actually do if they really wanted to do it. So the combination of those three things got me thinking and I knew what I had done to kind of get to that trip or get to the 200 mile finish line. But I wanted to learn from 100 other people and what are some of the things that they did and that's why I went out and and, I did the, you know, I did about 75, you know, executives and then about, you know, 25 to 30, um, ultra distance athletes. There's some overlap with some of these, just to understand these are people that can think really big, that think long-term and what are those behaviors that they do in order to, to reach the finish line, whatever that finish line is for them.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've interviewed quite a few people on this program where you know, you can see a lot of leadership development occurs in you know the early life through sports, yeah. and and sometimes it's team sports, sometimes it's individual sports, but you learn these lessons of working with other people, collaborating, um, and then that self reliance piece, that yeah. that grit, pushing yourself further to to make bigger gains and that self-discipline piece. and And I feel like there's so much that we can learn from these high achievers, you know, just how to manage our everyday lives, you know? Yeah. And that's what was so exciting. I love doing
1: the interviews because I, could, I was learning so much. You know, I was just learning, you know, what they did as leaders. Because some of these people risked a lot. I mean, they risked a lot of money at times or, and they knew how to manage, manage risk very well. Now, your profession probably knows how to manage risk better than most professions. Because you don't just run into a burning building without assessing the situation, and so you're, you guys, I think probably do a better job than most people. And so it was interesting to talk to these executives about how they feel about risk, and you know what, you know why, why, what gives them the confidence to go into a difficult situation and then be successful, or at times fail and then get back up and and do it, do something else.
0: Mm-hmm. you can you talk a little bit more about that and you know what did you discover yeah well a couple
1: things i i found out um what surprised me about risk because i asked i asked you know everybody it's like okay what's your comfort level with risk and 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 you may be able to relate with this but most people said is i want to minimize as much risk as possible you know i would have thought it's like oh yeah i'm very comfortable with risk but that wasn't the answer they said what we do is we look at how can we manage the risk, how do we manage the downside? So we're not just you know, we don't just go and jump into the pool without looking down into the pool and to see if there's obstacles. And and we know that there is going to be risk, but we also we know how to how to manage it. And it just that that's what I, I expected them to be a lot more comfortable with risk and said, no, yeah, we don't we don't like a we don't like a lot of risk. But we <laughs> but we know how to manage it.
0: Right. Um, and that is, uh, I guess, part of the iterate process, learning how to manage risk.
1: Yeah. Yeah, in the plan, you identify kind of what, what risks are there. You know, what are some of the risks that you may have with whatever your big endeavor is? And then as you go into it, plan and enter into iterate, it's like, okay, how do, I, how do I manage these risks? I know what they are. How am I going to minimize them as much as possible? And and part of it is you know you you don't jump into the deep end of the pool. Maybe you jump into the shallow end and then you slowly swim to the deep end, or you practice it. You don't run into a burning building <laughs> without kind of assess the, assessing the situation. And when you run into that burning building, you've run into hundreds of others in a training situation, so you know how fire works. You know kind of what some of the signs are you have to look for and so when you hear a certain noise or you you feel a certain thing you know it's time to leave the building right. um and and that's that's the same thing in business it's the same thing in sport you you kind of understand some of those situations i mean is is i guess i i pose that question to you is that similar to what you experience being in the uh in the the fire industry
0: oh without a doubt it, you know there's times when Uh, I've gone into burning buildings with somebody that has very little experience, you know, as a company officer or, you know, maybe a second-end chief officer, I'd go in on a a very large scene and uh, advance a hose line into a burning building and know, like, as it starts getting hotter and hotter, I'm getting closer to the fire. Um, but if I'm down on the ground because it's so hot and the only like uh, temperature that's bearable is at the floor, I yeah. probably need to move out if I haven't made it to the seat of the fire yet. Or if I don't have water on the fire, it's not going to get better on its own. It's just going to continue to get hotter. And I mean, it, there's a lot of conditions that uh, could result in ca- catastrophe if you're not smart about it. And right, you learn. Even yeah, as you go.
1: and that's what that iterate is. I mean, I I had I had some conversations with you know one one founder of a company ended up selling his company for about four billion dollars. He's he's doing all right, and he is now that he he skis all over the world, and so when it's summer up here, he's down in South America skiing. And he's just this phenomenal skier, and I talked to him, and I also talked to his ski coach, and they said, you know, both of them kind of said that. We often look at the worst case scenario. And what and in order for the worst case scenario to happen, a series of events likely would have had to happen before it. And are you aware of those series of events? And then what we really should be looking is what is the most realistic worst case scenario and how do you manage that but we we think what holds us back is we think about the worst case scenario which is death complete annihilation loss of all money you know whatever that is is and and that's what stops us and so how do we think about you know realistically what i mean you think of going into a burning building the worst case scenario is you don't come out right and it happens far more than we'd like it to, to happen but how often does it happen? I mean, what is the realistic worst case scenario um, that you have to deal with, and and so how are we managing a little bit more to more to that? Because if that that worst case scenario will stop us in our tracks, you would never find somebody to go into a burn, uh, burning building.
0: So, tell me some of the the lessons that you were able to glean from interviewing the the athletes. Yeah. You know, the, the, the
1: athletes and the executives, it, it was the same. Um, and, and some of the key elements that I heard from these 100 people is they're very focused on where they want to go in the future. So they don't let fate decide where, what, what the future is going to look like. And, and I know there are people that said, you know, you ask, oh, what do you want to do in uh, 20 years? And, and their response is, you know, I, I'm just going to kind of wherever it takes me. And these hundred people, that was not their response. You know, that is not my view as well. I, I'm not going to just kind of let fate take me to wherever it wants to take me. Right. Um, I'm going to have here's where I want to go in 20 years, or here's where I want to go in five years, and I'm going to drive to get there. And that's what these hundred people, they knew they were focused on what they wanted to do, and they were very deliberate on how they worked to get there. So they knew what to say yes to that would take up their time and money, and they also knew what to say no to. One of the guys that I interviewed, he's a a head of HR for a a, um, technology company, just very successful. He was a FIFA referee, so he's a soccer referee at the highest level of the game. And he's also an Ironman, and and he's got two daughters, so he's got a busy life and and so as he was training as he trains for an ironman i said how do you do it how do you balance all these things out and he talked about how he's very deliberate with what he does and what he doesn't do and he goes i know when i have to train for an ironman i have to find 12 hours in the week i can find 12 hours what that means is i have to say no to do and maybe this thing but you know we have 168 hours in our week we all have that same amount of time it's how we use that time is what differentiates these. And so he knows I got to find those twelve hours. I'm going to find them, and that'll allow me to train in order to do the Ironman. So, being very focused and being very deliberate were two areas. You know, the other one is uh, you know they, they just had a lot of confidence, and that confidence came from kind of successes early on or when you iterate. When you iterate and you you succeed at that smaller task, that gives you the confidence to move to something bigger. You know, We don't all start off in the at the deep end of the pool. We start off in the shallow end of the pool. We get that confidence, we get that comfort, and then we work our way into the uh, the deep end. You, you think about it, the water in the deep end and the shallow end are no different. It's up here in our head that prevents us from moving there. And once we can get into, into our head, then we can more easily be successful in the deep end.
0: Did the book confirm uh, more than teach you? I, I
1: don't know if it, the, the, book, writing, the book, writing a book, you learn a lot. Um, talking to the hundred people, there were some things that confirmed in my mind And then there were some things that I learned. And so I tried to bring all of that into into the book. Um, I mean, just, you know, give you one of the examples. One thing that I knew intuitively, but I didn't kind of really embrace it enough was when I identify when I determined that I wanted to interview 100 people, I thought, how many people am I going to have to ask in order to get to a hundred yeses, and I only had two no's. and and what what it it confirmed, but then also taught me is, you know, if you don't ask, the answer is going to be no. If you do ask, the answer just might be yes, and so whenever I'm, I'm faced with, it's like, oh, you know, I need some help around something. It's like, should I ask that person? Should I ask Dave to be on his uh, podcast? You know, he could say no. But if I don't ask him, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get on there. If I do ask him and he says no, it's like, okay, I'm in the same spot as if I didn't ask. But if I do ask him and he says, yes, which, you know, you did. And thank you. Then, all right. I've learned from that. So just the fact of go out and ask. And if you ask, you just might get a yes. So that's where that kind of that book, you know, I, I learned from it and I, you know, I learned, learned some things. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I got to do that better. There, there's five behaviors. I don't do all five of them great. And most people don't. Most people will do two or three of them really well. And they know how to compensate for the other two or three.
0: So how has your life changed since interviewing these hundred people and, and really putting the book together? You know I mean? And, and I mean that, and not really, how has it changed in the sense of going around speaking about your book, but right. you know, fundamentally what things have changed in your life?
1: Yeah. Other than the fact that I get to talk to cool people like you that that's more, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, and I love that. Um I interviewed one person, he's a superintendent of a 15,000 student school district. And, and I've seen him operate, I know how what he's like as a leader, and I've just been impressed with kind of his demeanor. And I was talking to him and asking him, you know, a number of questions. And, and he said, you know, whenever somebody throws out an idea, I like to try to figure out that that calls to me, no matter how crazy it is, I like to figure out how to say yes to it. And coincidentally, about a year after I interviewed him and I'm in the middle of writing the book, he calls me up and he said, hey, Brian, I want to raise $330 million for the school, because there's a lot of things that we want to do to improve the school. And I want to do this through a political campaign, a bond campaign. So where where you put it on the on the ballot and people vote for it. He goes, will you run it? And it was one of these things that I have no experience running a bond campaign. <laughs> I, I hate to ask people for money. And you've got to raise about $130,000 to do something like this, you know, for this specific one. I don't like asking people for money. I don't know anything about running a campaign. I'm good at managing projects. And I'm good at kind of marshalling people and kind of getting people moving in the same direction. It aligned with my values. It seemed like I I could find the time to do it. It seemed like a cool opportunity and it was good for the school. So I said, yes. (laughs) And I said, you do realize that I know nothing about running a bond campaign. And he said, he goes, you know, I've never run one either. So we can go through this together, but I could learn. And and it was, I mean, it's just this. It, it's a crazy, amazing experience to do that. I learned a tremendous amount, and he was the one that kind of got me thinking about when somebody throws a crazy idea out. And I don't think he was thinking he was going to ask me to do the bond campaign. Then um, you say yes, and and so I did. I'm glad I did, and we lost by about 600 votes,
0: wow.
1: and of a of a, a population of 48, you know, thousand voters. And I never regret making that decision. You know, it was a big failure on my part. And, and I would say yes, if we were to go back in time, I would do it again in a heartbeat. But it didn't result in, the, in what I wanted. And so it's, it really showed to me kind of what changed more so is me, is when somebody presents a crazy idea that really calls to you, try to see if you can say yes and then even if even if there's a high chance of failure and i don't think there was a high chance of failure but there was a chance of failure and we did i you know we often worry about fail failing and it's like i did i'm fine <laughs> and
0: and I, I moved on and so what, what's interesting to me you know that you're talking about this because then it's almost like you overcame that because i'm wondering did the fundraising come after the the Uh, Most, uh, all the money came before the election.
1: So we, uh, you know, we were able to raise the money before the, the election. Once you lose election, it's hard to get money for that. So you got to get it. Yeah. um, You got to get it beforehand.
0: So, so the, um, the co-ra, you were the co-race director for the Pleasanton run for education.
1: Yeah. It's funny because the, the, Um, so the person I ran the bond with is the same person that I, you know, we, we started up, uh, this, this run. And so it was her idea, she and I, you know, partnered up with it. And for the first four years, we kind of ran this run and, you know, we took it from, from nothing up to, you know, over 3000 runners. And it was just this phenomenal community event. It would raise, we would net about a hundred thousand dollars for the event, a whole lot of work. But it's something and now I'm not involved in it. Um, I've, I've passed it on somebody else does it, but I go to the event and highly successful and I look at it and it's like, you know, I'm proud of what that has become. I'm proud of my
0: involvement for it and and it raises money for education right it
1: raises money for education which you know you, at the core it's like how am i how am i spending a part of my time and part of my resources to improve education in our community
0: and and so that's what i was talking about is like you 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 campaigned for this cause it did not succeed but there is still this continuing on after we're...
1: And they're they're two completely separate events. So I, I was doing the the run first, and then I had uh, kind of backed away from the run, led it to somebody, and then I did the uh, um, the the campaign um, afterwards. But it was it all ties into things that I find is important, and I think that's that's kind of the key thing, Dave, is really understand what is it. You know, I'm I'm asked a lot. You know, we're often asked for money or our, my time. And, and so I, I will look at, you know, I, when I'm asked to do something to volunteer my time, I'll often ask myself three questions, you know, is it, is it something I will learn from? Is it aligned with where I want to spend, where I want to help? And there are a couple areas, organizations or kind of areas that I want to help in. And then will, will I learn something and will it, you know, it will it be fun? You know, so I ask myself those questions. If I can't say yes to all, then it's like, I'm not going to do it. If I can say yes, and I have to figure out, okay, how am I going to fit it into my time? Is it the right, right thing?
0: Yeah. yeah awesome. No, I, I I see that connection between, you know, the, the charity, the 501c3 raising yeah. funds for education. And, you know, it maybe two different events, but at the core, You're, you're doing things for, for education. You're
1: right. Yeah. Cause that is, that's something of like, okay, I can, I can add value here. So, and that's why it made it easy for me when, when the superintendent asked, would you run this campaign? It's like, okay, it it deals with education. um, And, you know, I'm going to learn a tremendous amount. And I think there's some, it it could be a fun kind of good people to work with. And it's like, all right, I got, I got to do it.
0: And how has that experience? And so I'm I'm asking these questions because I find that sometimes, you know, we, we go through these experiences um, and what we're trying to achieve, we fail at, but what we do achieve is learning something more valuable than if we had succeeded. Yeah. And so it, what I'm curious is, is, was there a lesson that came out of that that was actually more valuable uh, to you than actually achieving success of the campaign?
1: You know, for me, it was, you know, I, I can take on these big things and, it, and, and we ran a really good campaign. Um, you know, it just didn't get enough votes. Um, I can take on these things. I can learn. I can fail and i can still get up and do something again and and so that was uh you know one of the one of the big lessons and so it's it's it wasn't it's it was being less afraid of failure is is kind of that big lesson it's like i re- i remember i remember as a kid you know kind of like probably 7th grade and being at the school dance and you know, when I was a kid, you know, we would be at the gym and there would be like the, all the seventh and eighth graders and all the boys would be on one side and all the girls would be on the other side. And if you wanted to ask somebody to dance, you had to walk across the gym, which seemed like a mile and a half to get there because you'd identify somebody and you'd start walking to them and then you'd ask them to dance. And if the answer was yes, it's like, okay, that's great. But if the answer was no, you had to walk all the way back across the gym and it was embarrassing. And I remember just that fear of stopping me from walking across the gym because I was afraid of the no. And, and, and in real, realistically, it's a, if I got the no, what's the worst that's gonna happen to me? Yeah, I'm gonna feel embarrassed. I'm, gonna, you know, I'm not gonna feel great, but I'm probably gonna survive it. And I think that those types of things, we often, you know, we're afraid of that failure. We're afraid of what it's gonna do, but chances are we'll be able to survive it. I mean, a lot of people have failed at a lot of things and they seem to do all right. And so how do we get comfortable? Grant, I don't like to fail. (laughs) And it, it was when we lost the campaign, I was more disappointed that we didn't get the money for the school than kind of how it impacts me. But it's still, it's like, oh, that stings. But you got to get up and you got to move on.
0: Yeah. And and what what kind of lessons did you take away from these interviews? Uh, I mean, did any of them talk about failure?
1: Yeah, I mean, a bunch of them talked about failure um, of you know some companies that they had started. You know, I talked to you know one CEO who um he started a couple of companies and you know he had some big successes in a big company and then went and started a, another company and then sold it off um not at a huge profit but he still sold it off and then he he started two others and they didn't they didn't go and and you know it's interesting to learn that we all have failures and so how does he how did he get through it again it's like he He's got other successes that he can live on. And, and when you start companies, there's also, you know, that there's a high chance of failure rate, you know, more fail than, than don't. And, you know, maybe it was too early. So I, I learned a tremendous amount and every and everybody was very open about talking about how, yeah, we have had some failures. But what differentiates them from, the, from somebody else is they had the failure, they got up, they learned from it. And they tried something different and and moved on. Um, And and granted, everyone would say, hey, I'd rather not have the failure. But here's what I learned. Let's not repeat that again.
0: This book feels to me like it was written for anybody that wants to achieve more in their life. Um, Did you have a certain kind of person in mind? It's exactly what you said it's
1: it's that you know i'm not out here to kind of show somebody that hey you you should go and run 200 miles. But at the end of the day, excuse me. it's for that person that may be thinking they can get you know this level, but how can they push themselves a little bit higher than that so you're not going to see me running into a burning building. Um, But we all can figure out what's important to us, what do we wanna do, set those goals. And I'm thinking, all right, you could probably set it a little bit higher as a stretch. So, you know, my target audience is is in in some cases, it's that, that person that's just starting their career, that they can think about what is it, where do I wanna shoot 20, 30 years down the line as opposed to one or two years down the line? Or, or that person that maybe is in the middle of their career and trying to, you know, it's like, ah, I got to do something different and maybe is afraid to go travel around the world, afraid to quit their job and start their own company that it's like what could help them cross that that bridge is
0: really what we're looking at. Uh, it's uh, it's really cool. I, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Uh, you know when I, I I did a lot of research for for my book, and uh, you know, I went through some stuff towards the end of my career uh, in the fire service. and <clears throat> and I discovered this program at Yale, the Grand Strategy Program at Yale, which is, you know, for people that, are likely going to be leading large corporations or find themselves in high level leadership positions in the government. Uh-huh. And they're going to be making decisions that affect our country you know, long into the future.
1: Right.
0: Uh, and so there has to be this understanding, there has to be a plan there. You have to know where you want to be and work your way back. What are the actions that I need to take to get us to here? that will then allow us to get to here. And then right. so that um, that iteration piece that you have in- that.
1: Yeah, it's that iteration. But first, you got to be able to see that finish line. Right. You, you got to know what is it that we want when we get to where we want to go and and not enough time is spent there. And then once you know what it looks like and you can visualize it in your head, you can you know, put it on paper, whatever it is then you, you got to figure out, okay, what is my strategy to get there? And everybody has different plans. I mean, I talked to some people who we like, yeah, we had everything written down. And I had some people, their plan was on the back of a napkin. But then it's like, how do you iterate? You know, you don't change the world, <laughs> you know, overnight. Right. And what are those things? And, and I often, as I'm talking to folks is, you know, let's, let's get to what your big thing is. And then what do you have to do in the next 72 hours to move one step closer to that? You know, if you wanna be a firefighter, then what is that one thing you have to do tomorrow to learn a little bit more about firefighting, to figure out what the avenues are, to, to interview a firefighter? So what are those? What's that one thing, even small, that you can do in the next 72 hours? And then what can what's the next thing? So just start doing something even if you don't have your complete plan rolled out just start doing something i often when people ask me it's like you know how do you what's what's the, the first thing i should do for uh to run a marathon and i say sign up for one don't worry about your plan sign mm-hmm. up for one and then you've just put some money down and you've got something on the calendar don't do it in, in two weeks but sign up for one maybe three four five six months down the road and then go research a plan and find a plan <laughs> but the hardest part about running a marathon is signing up for it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Really cool. Really cool. Uh, thank you so much for having this conversation with me for the, for the people out there that have enjoyed listening to this, that, you know, find themselves uh, craving that your book in their hands, you know, they got to go out and get it. What's the best way, for them to get a copy of your book and the best way for them to connect with you and, and learn more about you.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, Dave, I appreciate you having me on your podcast. I appreciate your service to our community and all that you and your, uh, your colleagues do to keep, keep us, uh, us safe. Um, and, and so I appreciate that. So the best way to get in touch with me is you can get the book Epic performance lessons from hundred executives and endurance athletes on reaching your peak. You can get that on Amazon, just go on to Amazon and type in Epic performance, Brian Gillette, and you'll, you'll find it. The other way to get in touch with me is you can go to my website, which is epicperformances.com. So that's E P I C performances with an S.com. And that, you know, that'll give you my bio. It'll link you link you where you can contact me and, um, learn more about me in the book.
0: Yeah, no, I really enjoyed, uh, going through your website and there's just so much information on there. And, uh, yeah, uh, your, your website made me jealous. So <laughs> <laughs> really nice website. Thank you. I
1: appreciate, I appreciate your, uh, your time and, and thanks a lot, Dave.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on thank you for listening to this episode of from embers to excellence please visit hollandbachleadership.com for additional content and don't forget to like subscribe and leave a review